You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. If you were to stop an elementary school age, Chris Dills, and ask him, what are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? He would immediately respond, I don't watch wrestling. How do you know I watch wrestling? Who told you I watch wrestling? They're a liar, they're a liar, they're a liar. Because obviously I did, but I wasn't supposed to. Shh, don't tell my parents. Because every night, every, not every night, but every Saturday night, I would sneak to the TV that I could find and I'd watch WCW Saturday Night Live. And I would watch Sting in his endless battle against the wicked, awful four horsemen, Arn Anderson, Lex Luger, the nature boy, Ric Flair, some other guy that I don't remember. But either way, they were so easy to hate. And that was my initial interaction with that phrase, the four horsemen. It was wrapped up in this wrestling world. If you were to ask a middle school age, Chris, what the four horsemen of the apocalypse were, I would be immediately horrified. Because when I was in youth group, our youth pastor every around Halloween would take us to this church that did one of those kind of alternative Halloween haunted trail things, but it was all based around kind of end times thing from a certain theological persuasion. And you would walk through all of these scenes. And one of them was supposed to represent the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it was actually dudes on horses in full costume. And they all had these voice changing effects. One was really deep and one whispered and one had this voice like Skeletor from He-Man and it was just super creepy. And the one that had that voice also wore a scream mask. For those of you of a certain age, remember the movie Scream and that, that ghost face that was really stretched. And if you wanted the recipe for how to cripple my sleep as a middle schooler for the next, I don't know, four to six weeks, it's horses and the scream mask. And so it was this perfect bringing together of the things that kept me up at night over and over and over again. And as you're going to see this morning, my understanding of this has changed a little since then too. And so my understanding of, of this passage of scripture that we're going to deal with today as we look at the first four seals that Jesus opens, and we see this big phrase, this big revelation phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's not only wrapped in so much thought inside of the church, but also has a connotation outside the church and is just part of popular vernacular. If my understanding has changed so many times over the course of this life, then obviously there are a lot of understandings and interpretations that happen. If you were to ask 10 different pastors, there's a chance that we would get 10 different understandings of this. And so listen to that as my disclaimer here. This is where we're getting into some of the parts of the book of Revelation that are incredibly open when it comes to interpretation, because there's parts of these things that we just can't fully understand in full. And so as good students of God's word, we want to do the best we can to understand them inside of their biblical context, to read them the way that they were designed to be written, but we didn't get to see the fullness of what John saw. And so a lot of this is going to come down to interpretation and how we view the whole of scripture, but also how we view this incredibly important book. And so I say all of that to say, if you disagree, as we talk about some of these, these deep prophetic things that are happening in the book of Revelation, that's okay. And we can talk about it and we can be friends and we can go to church and we should worship together and continue doing this because these are, these are admittedly difficult passages. 
And there are a lot of different schools of interpretation for the entire book of Revelation, but especially for passages like this. And without breaking them all down, some of them are more sensational than others. Some of them are more ingrained, particularly kind of in the American mindset because of the way that scripture has been interpreted over the past 150 some odd years. Some of these look at these prophecies as entirely future. And so especially with this passage here, there's some that would interpret this passage to look at this future coming of these four horsemen of the apocalypse, whatever that looks like, to bring judgment on the world, to lead to the return of Christ, that it's a season of tribulation to come. But I think, based on what we've seen in the first five chapters here, I don't think that quite grabs what the Apostle John is trying to communicate to us here. As we've seen, even the idea of tribulation, even with a capital T, is something that John seems to understand as a thing that was taking place as he was writing these words in his own life as he was in exile on the island of Patmos. He understood this as a constant reality for all of the seven churches in Asia to which he wrote those early letters and seems to understand that this tribulation with a capital T is something that is going to be a continuum throughout the entirety of the life of the church until Christ returns to make all things right and all things new. And so if this isn't something pointing entirely future, then maybe is it something that points entirely past? Are these four horsemen of the apocalypse representing seasons and times in human history over the course of the life of the church that we can break down chronologically? Probably not. These are to be seen, I think, less as chronological unfoldings of things through time and place and history and more as a picture of the entire season in between the death and resurrection of Christ and his return and all of the trial and tribulation and difficulty that takes place. When we look at these four horsemen of the apocalypse and what they represent, what we see is God in essence giving humanity what they want. And these four horsemen of the apocalypse represent four kingdoms that we turn our affection from God and place it somewhere else. Things that promise us things that we want to cling to. Things that promise us kingdoms that promise us the life that we think that we want or that we want to grab a hold of. Stephen Smalley, who has written multiple commentaries on the book of Revelation, says this. This depiction of the horsemen in its totality expresses in broad and symbolic terms the misfortune and sorrow precipitated by sinful humanity when it rejects the cause of Christ, the ultimate victor and true king. This is what happens when we look away from the king of heaven and start looking to earthly kingdoms to meet our needs. And what we see in these passages is judgment that just kind of comes naturally. And this fits in with the character of God all throughout the big narrative of scripture. Think about Genesis chapter three, the very first emergence of sin inside of, of this big biblical stories. We see the story of Adam and Eve who looked at this boundary that God set for them and heard the temptation. If you do this, you'll be like God. 
He's hiding something from you. He's trying to keep something from you. If, you. if you do this, you'll reach some sort of sense of enlightenment and a new place at who you're supposed to be. Don't listen to God. Follow after your own desires. And in essence, we see God saying, you know what? If that's what you want, have at it. If this is what you think you want, you see what's on the other side of that. Go ahead and participate in that sin. Go ahead and look somewhere else for your life and your certainty and your security and see where that leads you. We see that take place all throughout the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They'd start to look around and they'd see the other kingdoms and they'd see the other kings and they would see the other gods and all the things that were happening in the cities and the nations around them. And they'd start to get this pull in their heart saying, I wish we were like that. I wish we have what they have. And so God says, you know what? If that's what you want, that's what you can have. And we see a picture of that through the prophet Ezekiel. I got all my E prophets mixed up in my head. I was like, Elijah, Elijah, Ezekiel, there it is. It's been a long weekend, guys. And so Ezekiel gives us this picture of God leaving the temple, saying, you want to worship these other gods? You want to see what it's like to follow after them? Fine, here you go. And the people find themselves in captivity and exile and oppressed by these other nations because they find that these other kingdoms aren't all they're cracked up to be. And so this is the judgment of God on the world right here and right now and throughout the age of the church and the ages we've been sinning. As long as there's been sin, God has been allowing these kingdoms to have their false rule and people turning to them constantly and finding out that they are empty and vain. And now, as we look at Revelation chapter 6, we get to see this on a cosmic scale. We get to see this portrayed through this incredible prophetic language and hopefully begin to understand this idolatry that some of those churches that John was writing letters to, the idolatry that they were turning to, the kingdoms in which they placed their trust, the kingdoms in which we place our trust time and time again as the whole of humanity, they have nothing to offer. And they're only cheap imitations of the true king who is coming to make all things right and all things new. But even as we see these things, as we're about to read, we need to constantly keep in our minds that while the world is in this state of brokenness and chaos because of sin and rebellion and idolatry, we serve a living and reigning king who has called us to be his kingdom and put on display the true kingdom in the midst of all the ones that are false. And so let's dive in and see what John sees in these seven seals. We're going to read and go through the first four today. We'll look at the next two next week, and then the seventh will come in a few weeks. He says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures with a voice like thunder say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. And its rider was permitted to take place, take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. 
and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, this is a hard word today. Both in the nature of interpretation and also just in the content of what we see as you allow us to get what we want. So Father, today I pray that we see you as holy. We just sang those words that you are holy and powerful and majestic and wonderful, God. Help us to see the fullness of who you are. God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to see the sovereignty of Christ as the true King of kings and Lord of lords who not only conquered death and the grave, but who conquered sin and will one day bring all of these false kingdoms to nothing as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he and he alone is Lord. And God, as we live in the midst of seeing all of these kingdoms in conflict and war and conquest over one another, God, help us to be a city on a hill, a light shining in the darkness like stars in the sky. Help us to be a counter kingdom, showing the beauty of a life reconciled by Jesus and the hope of eternity, not in just what we say, not just in the fact that we come together as a church weekly, but God, every moment of every day, help us to be good ambassadors of your kingdom. Forgive us for the times when we look elsewhere. God, correct our sight and help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Verse one, John, after seeing this incredible dramatic picture of frustration and heartache in heaven as no one was able to open this scroll, this big, beautiful plan of God's redemption of his people and his creation. John sees Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain, but is yet the Lion of Judah, powerful and mighty, walking up to the throne of God and taking the scroll. And he says, now I get to watch him open them. He says, now the Lamb of God that opens this first seal that no one in heaven or on earth was worthy to open. And as he does, we see these four living creatures that have been such an important part of this vision inside of heaven. We see the first one with a voice like thunder 
say, come. And then we start to see exactly what's contained in those seals. Verse two, John says, and I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, this is not the last time we're going to see a depiction of a white horse. And so it could be easy if you've read through the entire book of Revelation, then we see later on when Jesus returns to make everything right and everything new and judge the world and redeem his people once and for all, we get this picture of Jesus doing so on a white horse. And so an easy connection to make would be like, okay, well, maybe, maybe this is Jesus. Maybe we see Jesus coming in judgment here. But it's careful to, we should be careful to point out the fact that this portrayal of this white horse is not nearly as awesome and awe-inspiring as what we see happen when Christ makes his return. The language here is subdued. He just looks and he sees and it's a white horse and the rider had a bow and there was a crown given to him and he comes out conquering and to conquer, but the language isn't as powerful and dynamic as when John describes Jesus. And so what we have here is not a picture of Christ, but this is a cheap imitation. And this first kingdom that we see unleashed in the world here is the false Messiah of political power. And even from the very beginning, we see that the whole mission and the purpose of this rider is to go out conquering and to conquer, and he's given a crown. There's a certain level of authority here. And we understand from what Paul teaches in the book of Romans that all authority under heaven and earth is given by God for a season and for a purpose. And no one has authority that wasn't allowed that time apart from God. But this is a false kingdom nonetheless. And maybe the place in which we place most of our trust in which people have placed most of their trust throughout the history of the world looking to some sort of outside person, place, or thing, saying, we need you to save us. And the most obvious example of that is is the people that have leadership, looking to governments, looking to politics, looking to political power, coming out and saying, please save us. And we know that this is a problem from a long time ago. Because in the book of Psalms, chapter 20, verse 7, we get that passage that says some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. And so there's been this dynamic difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of earth. But those things seem much more tangible. And we can see this every election cycle, right? We put signs in the yard and stickers on the car. We wave the banners of the person that we think best meets our ideologies. And we're in essence, a lot of times, sometimes whether we mean it or not, we're looking to these human flawed, broken people and these broken political systems crying out, save me. I can't handle this on my own. I need you to step in and do for me what I can't do. And we become desperately dependent on the governments and the systems of this world. And this should be a reminder of how easy it is to reject the one true king in Christ and put our hope in worldly kings and presidents and political parties and governments, local and larger. But look at what the writer wants to do here. 
And I think this is an important thing to remember when it comes to politics, because no matter how noble, these are still broken people. No matter how good the the mentality may be going in, the political system, the political structure says that he comes in and he wants to conquer and to continue conquering. Stephen Smalley translated that. He went forth conquering to conquer more. And at the end of the day, the political system is designed, yes, hopefully to help the people that it chooses to represent, but it's mostly about victory. And all throughout the history of the world, we see this idea that when when power is given to broken, sinful people, it has a tendency to go terribly, terribly wrong. And so this writer that represents the kingdoms of this world, the whole desire there is for conquest and nothing more, and he's never satisfied. He's always looking to consume and take more and more and more. And so it's easy for us to get caught up in here. Take more of me. Take more of my hope and my peace and my rest and my security. I need to give it all away because we see the government. We see the political structure. We see these things. But sometimes God's provision and protection is a little more difficult to grab a hold of. And this seal seems to pave the way for the rest coming in, pulling the attention of God's people away from God and conquering and destabilizing, creating fear and unrest and mistrust and dividing people in the midst of God's good world. And then comes the second seal. It says, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. And again, understanding the Old Testament is so crucial and important to these passages of scripture. And there's a parallel here. As John is writing this vision of the four horsemen, going back to the prophet Zechariah, who saw four riders with chariots, and they were all different colors. But John takes that vision and color codes it a little bit to help us understand the meaning of these things that are taking place. And usually, at least in the natural world, The brighter the colors, as unnatural as it may seem, the brighter the colors, the more dangerous the creature. And a lot of times things that are bright red are giving you a warning before you get there that something dangerous is coming. And so when John sees this bright red horse, we should pay attention and be alarmed. And he says, this rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. And there's a lot to unpack there. Because the first rider was given this crown, was given this temporary sense of authority and reign and governance. And now this rider here is given permission to seemingly do something horrible, to seemingly do something that was awful. And this is where we get in the difficult conflict of the sovereignty of God. And we see this in the book of Job, maybe more clearly than anywhere else as God calls the whole council of heaven together and Satan is there making accusations against God's people saying, what about this boy Job? He only praises you because he's got everything working for him and God says, take it, take it all and permits Job to be run through incredible and difficult tribulation. And so there's some difficulty there where we recognize that God does allow us to be turned over to our own devices at times and allows us to choose sin, allows us to choose other kingdoms and steps back and permits those kingdoms a little sense of authority. But also there is some comfort here 
Because as God permits this to take place, we know one day he is going to end that permission once and for all. As Isaiah gets that picture of the new heaven and the new earth, when people take their swords and beat them into plowshares and this violence is no more and the brokenness of the sinful world in which we live is taken away and all of the violence and hatred and warring are gonna be replaced with peace. And so we know that this is never going to go beyond God's control or it's never going to spiral out of what God can handle. But another thing important in this verse, we see that God permits him to take peace from the earth, not to make violence. And I think there's a really important distinction there, even though it seems so very small. He doesn't come in putting swords in the hands of people and whispering in their ears. He doesn't come leading violence and war and military might in this false kingdom of power and conquering other people. He just comes in and he takes the peace away. And the result of that is so that men should slay one another. And so this rider comes in and just lets us do what we naturally want to do. Jesus is called in scripture, the Prince of Peace. And when we turn our eyes away from him, when we turn our eyes away from our King and our Prince of Peace, then the result of that is violence and war and brokenness in relationships. Sometimes it's actual physical violence and death. Sometimes it's hatred that we hide in our hearts against other people because of who they are or where they come from or what they look like or because they have something in them that just makes us feel uncomfortable and difficult. And so we look at them with violence in our heart, even when we don't treat them with violence with our hands. And we get this picture here of a world trusting in military might and warfare and violence and hands that are angry and ready to fight over the Christ of peace. But we're taught in scripture that the kingdom of heaven is one of peace. And Jesus has called us individually as his people, as his children to be peacemakers. But it's hard to do when we have violence living inside of us when there's this draw to put other people down and hate other people inside of us because of our sinfulness and our pride and our brokenness. And so violence and conquest reign. But it's our responsibility to take up that mantle of Christ and to be peacemakers with everyone that we can. Paul gives us the instruction that as long as it depends on us, so long as we can help it, we should live at peace with everyone. And that's another example of how we can stand as a part of this counter kingdom, looking at these false kingdoms and these false authorities saying, no, I'm not going to trust in horses and chariots. I'm not going to trust in all of these things that are vying for my attention. I'm not going to give in to my sinfulness and my fear and my pride and react in violence, but I am going to be a follower of Christ and leave a trail of peace everywhere that I go. And then comes the third seal. It says, when I opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and behold a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And then he hears something. He says, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a cord of wheat for a denarius 
and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Throughout scripture, we have this incredible picture that our God is a God of the poor, both financially, both in power, both in prestige, spiritually, that he is a God of the poor. We see in Psalms over and over again that he is the lifter of the lowly. And he reaches down into the mire. He reaches down into the dirt and he takes paupers and sits them up with princes that God is the great equalizer. But even before that, as we look in Genesis, we see that God has created each and every one of us in his own image. That every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever drawn a breath was created in the image of God by a God who loves us and cares for us. And even though our sin has covered that, even though our sin has marred that and distorted that in our lives, the fact remains that each and every one of us has been made in the image of God. But this third seal shows us a world with a very different view of humanity and an economy that is very far away from God's economy. Because we've looked at political power, we've seen the, the power of the kingdom itself and the violence that comes from that. And now John is giving us this picture of the false kingdom of economics and economic security. In verse five and six, we see this picture of the rider on the black horse. And he's holding in his hand a pair of scales weighing things out. And then this voice calls out from the living creatures. And what he says is really strange, especially reading this almost 2,000 years in the future. He says, I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. A couple of things to note here. A denarius would be a full day's wage for a worker. And so he's saying these items cost an entire day's wage for a common worker. And so that's a lot of money. And so maybe we would be thinking these must be the specialty items, right? This is the lobster and the caviar and the special things. These are the important foods and the things that, that the wealthy can dine on. But no, wheat and barley and oil and wine, these are common goods, inexpensive goods. And what we see here, that these are bare necessities and inexpensive items that are costing a full day's wage and are now beyond the reach of so many people. And we see because we've turned and we've trusted our finances, we've trusted money and the economic systems in which we're a part of so much that we have unbalanced the world. And you have a system of people that have and people that do not. And it doesn't matter where we fall in this debate. It doesn't matter what we think is the best system that the world has to offer because the two extremes here, we have one system that teaches us that we take everything that we have and give it to these broken governments that we've talked about and they'll handle it well. And then on the other side, we have this mentality that says everything that you earn belongs to you. And so take as much as you can and it doesn't matter who you step on to get there, but hoard it and keep it and save it and make sure that you have it all. And both of these systems are so completely far away from the gospel. When we looked at the book of Luke, Jesus talked a lot about how we handle our money. 
And we talked about this being the upside down economy of the kingdom where the last are first and the first are last, where the greatest are least and the least are greatest, where we're called to care for those in need, to give to widows and orphans, where James tells us that true religion is when we care for and give to those in need and keep ourselves unstained from the world. We can easily call that the upside down economy, but it's actually the right way up. What we live in now and what we see in the world, that's the broken system. And as followers of Christ, we're called to put something else on display in the way in which we handle our finances and what we have, or I guess I should say what God has allowed us to be good stewards of. And we see a picture of that in Acts chapter two, don't we? That the church was coming together and what were they doing? They had everything in common. And if anybody inside the church or outside had any need, then not only were people stepping up to meet that need, but if they didn't have what they needed to help them meet that need, they were willing to take their own property, to take their own stuff and sell it and use the profits to care for those who are in need. But when we start thinking about all the stuff that we have as mine and something that I've earned, something that belongs to me, then it's really easy to start looking at it from that broken system where we can easily allow some people to suffer while other people rise up and not really caring about the difference. But it's our responsibility to put God's system on display. Followers of Christ should be exceedingly generous with what we have, not because we're told to or because we are obligated, but because we know that everything that we have has been given to us by a good and gracious God. And so if you have a lot, then share a lot. And if you only have a little, then no matter what we have, we have something to offer that someone else doesn't have. Be we rich or poor or somewhere in the middle, we have good gifts from the God who pours those out on his children, and we should use those for the good of others and the spread of the kingdom of God. Because we have the ability to do that, even if it's just in such a small way, showing the world that there is something different about following Christ, even through the way that we use our finances and our material goods. And so we have these false kingdoms of politics and power and economics. And then comes the fourth seal. It says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice from the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. Now, different translations translate that word pale a little differently. Some may say pale green, but basically what John is describing here is a horse that's the color of a corpse. (laughs) And on him rides death and Hades, the personification of the end of these kingdoms. And they were given authority. And this isn't the first time in the New Testament that we see that language assigned to death. As Paul is teaching us about the effects of sin in Romans 5, 6, and 7, he tells us that because when sin entered the world, that death began to be a part of our normal lives. But not only was death part of life, but death actually had authority and dominion over us. He says death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death had victory over all of humanity. And that's why Paul's language changes on the other side of the resurrection where he says, death, where is your victory? 
because Jesus conquered the last enemy that we had. But here we see again the result of hearts that drift away from following after God and our true King in Christ. We're taught in scripture that God is our father, that he not only created us, but he breathes life into us and stamped us in his image. The psalmist teaches us that he knits us together in our mother's wombs and that each and every one of us are fearfully and carefully and wonderfully made by the God who designed the universe. He's the giver of life. We sing a song that says, it's your breath in our lungs. And so every single breath that we take is given to us by the God who holds the stars in his hands. And in that incredible story in Genesis chapter three, we see what happens when sin enters the world because these people that once walked closely with the God of life were sent out of his garden and out into death. Jesus teaches us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to God, that no one can come to life without him. And so Paul sees this picture of all these people who are looking towards all of these other kingdoms, who are looking away for Christ, trying to find their salvation somewhere else, and all of these kingdoms lead to the same place, and that's death. And again, we see that these judgments are simply sinful people getting what they want. God's saying, you don't want me? You don't want the giver of life? You don't want the Christ who gave his life, died and was resurrected from the grave so that you could have life? If you don't want me, then fine, go see what you can find. And the result is always death. Jesus teaches that. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, but broad is the way that leads to destruction and death. And we see this sad and broken picture of God's good creation and chaos and people that were made for life meeting death. C.S. Lewis once said that there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. It's just a matter of, are you following after the kingdom of Christ or these kingdoms whose end is only death? And in these seals, that's exactly what we see. We see thousands of years now of hell on earth a world given to rebellion against God, seeking salvation anywhere they can find it and only finding death. But it's also a world where Christ is king, a world where he calls us to be members of his kingdom, to be sons and daughters of God. And that puts us in a really awkward situation Because we even see Jesus praying for his disciples, asking that God wouldn't take them out of the world, but would leave us inside of the world. And that's where we get that calling to be in the world and not of it. To live amongst the kingdoms, but not in them. And we get this picture all the way back to the Old Testament prophets where the people of God were living in exile. And he says, you make your life there. You get married, you have children, you build houses, you do all the things that you're doing, but you follow after me while you do it, even though all those around you are following after all of these other gods. And you show them what it looks like to be my people. And that's how we're called to live in the in-between. 
as we live in between Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and the hope of his return to make all things right and all things new. As we still live in a world broken by the effects of sin and rebellion against God, we have been called to step up and say, no, this is what it looks like to be reconciled to God. This is what it looks like to have peace with God. This is what it's like to have our salvation through Jesus Christ and the hope not just of the temporary here and now and the quick fixes, but of an eternal hope and an eternal place with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we do that in the way that we speak, in the way that we think, in the way that we live, in our affections and our affiliations, in the way in which we navigate a political system in which we're called to take place in doing our part, being who we're supposed to be as citizens of a country, but more than that, finding our hope as people who are citizens of heaven, taking all that God has given us and not looking at it as a way to establish ourselves or build a foundation or a life for ourselves or our children, but to take it as a gift from God, using it wisely, but also using it generously for the good of those around us living out what it means to not just be a counter kingdom, but to be the only kingdom that cannot be shaken and the kingdom that will one day find its fulfillment, not somewhere else, but as we'll see, Jesus is going to bring the fullness of it here to earth. And so right now we can give little windows of that kingdom in every interaction and in everything that we do as followers of Jesus. But until that time when Christ comes, we need to be aware of a few sureties. One is the certainty of tribulation with a capital T. The tribulation that hurts. That God's people, Jesus promised that they, if people hated him, they're going to hate us in the exact same way. And so just because we don't experience the fullness of tribulation or oppression or brokenness in the world, in the country in which we live, that doesn't mean that we don't have brothers and sisters all over this world who are enduring tragedy and heartache and imprisonment and brokenness for the cause of Christ. And so while we get to endure a little bit of comfort, we need to be praying for and loving on those who do not. But there are going to be times in each and every one of our lives on a varying different scale of when we feel broken and hurt, when we experience the tribulation of following Christ in a broken world, and we need to be ready and prepared for that. And know that just like our churches that John wrote these letters to, that sometimes God will give us reprieve from that tribulation, and sometimes he will say to us that you need to endure a little more. But we don't suffer like those who are in a constant state of unrest. We don't mourn like those who have no hope. And even if this world kills us, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ because Jesus, the true King, has conquered the grave. And so we, as his followers, can literally endure anything. But just as much as we can be sure of tribulation, we also need to be sure of the sovereignty of the Lamb, that Christ is King and nothing is going to dethrone him. The writer of Hebrews says that we have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken because the Old Testament promises us that Jesus is the king of whom his reign will never end and his throne will last forever. And so as we do this, we know that we don't do this alone. We don't endure this life alone, but that we are following after Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we have a promise that that Jesus is sealing us and protecting his people. 
And that doesn't mean we won't endure. That doesn't mean we won't suffer. That doesn't even mean that we won't die. But next week, as we see the fifth and sixth seal open and we look in to Revelation chapter seven, we are going to see that God never forgets his people, that he is always with us, that he is always for us, that he never allows us to go alone and that he has a hope and a promise for us that far surpasses anything that we can suffer and endure here and now. But we'll talk about that next week.